Big welcome to Baby Sillers today. Very good. Great to see you. You can clap, by the way. You don't give COVID by clapping. I'm not aware that. Yeah, yeah. Benice, I need you to be loud in this service. Because here's what I found. I don't know why, but we split the church into three. And everybody's like, this. I don't know why. It's okay to go, amen. Or, that's good. Or, I agree. So, Benice is going to be our cheerleader. She's going to be, amen, that's right, that's what I'm expecting. I'm going to be addressing the four o'clock service in particular. The four o'clock service are our young people. They are the quietest. We're going to try and help them this afternoon, yeah, by the grace of God. It is good to see you um, as a congregation. It's good to be around you. As I said a few weeks ago, I'd much rather ten of these than one online. Online is not actually church it's just you sitting in your living room looking on at a group of people preaching and singing. This is church when we're together, when we're gathered in some shape or form in a tangible way and I'm so pleased that you are here with us today. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bible, please, to Colossians chapter 3. If you want a title for today's message, I've called it The Gospel and Godliness. And our story really just continues through the book of Colossians. We're presently in a series, as you know, on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Paul's letter to the Colossians is primarily about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 1 and chapters 2, we have been paraded around that glorious supremacy, haven't we? We've seen that Jesus Christ is supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God, for in him... The fullness of God dwells bodily. We've also seen that Jesus is supreme in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything in this room, including yourself, has ultimately been created by God. He's the author and founder of it all, including your very lives. And the reason why we're now breathing and our hearts are still going is because he's sustaining us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. One day every knee will bow before him. He's also supreme in the church. He's the head over all things, the ultimate pastor and leader of Sovereign Grace Church and every church around the world. And he is ultimately then also supreme over our reconciliation. It says there in chapter 1 that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You can attach your name next to that verse. That was you. It was me. We were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And yet God, by his grace, came after us in the greatest rescue mission ever told and saved us. So that now we've been positioned before God as forgiven, as redeemed, as reconciled and adopted. What an incredible reality, don't you think? In chapters 1 and 2, that's what Paul has been parading before our eyes, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to take us by the hand and explain to us what that all means. What does it mean to now live in light of that reality? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? What does it mean to now live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received? Well, with that in mind, we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 3. We're only going to give ourselves, preaching-wise, to verses 5 to 11. But by way of context, I want to start where Brendan began last week with chapter 3, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its sufficiency. I thank you for its necessity. I thank you for its clarity. Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you do what no preacher can ever do? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to what you're trying to say? Lord, I do thank you that you speak with such tender mercy and yet clarity. So Lord, would you give me the words to say and would you give us all ears to hear this morning so that we may become more and more like you, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As many, if not all of you would know, I have never been much of a fan in my life of vegetables. For me, vegetables are, well, just not really my preference. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have plenty of family and friends, Simon Wood for a start, who really like vegetables, that come over your house and want to eat all the vegetables. That has been something I've never, ever felt in my life For me, vegetables don't really float my boat. For example, Brussels sprouts. They're the devil's food. I mean, they're just awful. Cabbages. Ooh, broccoli. Take a good look at broccoli. It's like a lung that's green. Why would you eat it? It's horrible. It gets in your mouth. I don't know what it's doing there. Listen, I'm fine that other people like vegetables. Some of you are probably big fans of vegetables. I love that. I deeply respect that. But for me, well, vegetables, they are just not really my And the reason why I say that is not to draw attention to the reality that I don't really like vegetables. It's to draw attention, I think, to the sad reality, I believe, that all too many Christians can think of their pursuit of holiness like I think of vegetables. And so, for sure, for others, holiness is a great thing. To pursue holiness and put sin to death, I think that's really wonderful for others. I think it's a great aim. I respect that. But for me, well, it's just not really my preference. And so for sure, I have plenty of family and friends that do things like that. And I think it's wonderful. But, but for me, I didn't grow up in a home that really did that. You know, my parents didn't pray with me about that. I, I don't remember talking a lot about my sin. So I, I love it and I deeply respect it in others. I think it's wonderful. But for me, the pursuit of holiness, well... That's just not really my thing. And that reality and that view of our pursuit of holiness, like I think of vegetables, is unbiblical and dangerous and completely grievous to the Lord. See, Kevin DeYoung, in his wonderful book, The Hole in Our Holiness, which I'd recommend to you all, he says it this way. He says, the hole in our holiness is exactly that that we don't really care much about it. Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard of in most of our churches. It's not that we don't talk about sin or encourage decent behavior, but too many sermons are basically self-help seminars on becoming a better you. And that's moralism. And that's not helpful. A gospel which says only that you, what you must do and never announces what Christ has done is no gospel at all. So I'm not talking here about getting beat up every Sunday for watching Sports Center and driving an SUV. No. I'm talking about the failure of Christians, especially younger generations, and especially those most disdainful of religion and legalism, to take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption and one of the required evidences of eternal life. Namely, our holiness. Listen. For there is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And it must change. I simply cannot say it better than that. There is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And that must change. Change. We can be passionate about the gospel, we love the gospel, we sing the gospel, but we feel nothing when it comes to our pursuit of godliness. And that must change. And it must change because that is exactly what Paul addresses for us here in Colossians chapter 3. 
Because what Paul is trying to help us see here is this one simple yet profound reality. And it's this. That as Christians, we are to give ourselves to become in daily experience what we have been declared to be in Christ. As Christians, we are to give ourselves to pursue becoming in daily experience what we have been declared to be in Christ. You see, if you're here today and you are a Christian, you have been declared in Christ. He told us in chapter 1, we have been declared in Christ to be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Staggering reality. Been declared over your life. You are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach. That is your identity and standing before heaven above. And what Paul wants to help us see, we must give our lives now to becoming in daily experience what we have been declared to be in Christ. See, the pursuit of holiness isn't an optional extra for the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It's one of the things we are called to do. That's why it is a theme running through the entirety of the New Testament. So Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4, for example. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Listen, what have you been chosen for? That we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1 verses 8 to 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 15, for example, Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Bible does not paint a picture of our pursuit of holiness like I paint a picture of how I think about vegetables. It is not an optional extra. It is something we must all do. We must all give ourselves to. And that's why Paul here wants to help us see as Christians, as people who are claiming to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must give ourselves to become in daily experience what we have been declared to be in Christ. And very specifically then in these verses, he explains that what that means is to put to death the evil ways of the old self. Now, I'm aware that for many of you, which is why you're either very tired or looking at me kind of blank in this moment, you're wondering, how does this work? I mean, didn't just a few weeks ago we had the plates, remember the plates? And we explained that they can just drop to the floor and God still loves us and accepts us. So what's this all about? Has Paul changed his mind? I mean, is something like differing now? We're moving to a different part. Is this like a different salvation? How how does this work? And if it does work, then how does it work? What do we actually do with this? What does this look like? How do we avoid becoming legalistic in our lives if we actually do this? Well, they're the questions that I want to tackle for the remainder of our time. The way I've designed this message is not just to take us through the text, but try and answer those questions that I think are obvious and important questions that we understand. So I have three questions for you this morning, then, and here's the first. Number one, so how does the gospel and godliness go together? How does this work? I mean, I had thought that we had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? I thought that was the point. We put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Has Paul changed his mind? Well, what's this all about? This pursuit of godliness, how does this work? Well, my friends, when it comes to understanding how godliness and the gospel come together, there are two massive mistakes that we can make on this. One mistake is the mistake of legalism. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago. 
It's the mistake of thinking that the cross wasn't quite enough. We need Jesus' saving work in our place, plus we need my Bible reading and my prayer and my evangelism. The cross wasn't quite enough, so it's the cross plus my works which will make me acceptable before God. That is legalism, and it should have no place in the kingdom of God. And yet, because I believe you are well taught on this topic, I don't believe legalism is necessarily going to be our tendency. No, what our tendency to be is probably going to be antinomianism. And antinomianism is this. It is taking the word of God and our pursuit of godliness and saying, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So my behavior, it just doesn't matter anymore. There's no pursuit of holiness. There's no pursuit of godliness. It just doesn't matter. I'm grateful for the word of God, but you can just go ahead and put that on the shelf because I'm just going to live for me and I'm in. That's called antinomianism. And both errors and both are mistakes and both are heresy before the Lord. They are dangerous and erroneous ideas. So how does the gospel and godliness actually go together in the Bible and in the kingdom of God? How does this work? Well, the best I can come up with on this is the words of Dr. John Piper. It's a quote I actually used a couple of weeks ago from the perspective of understanding how the gospel interacts with our lives. But now I want to look at the same quote from the perspective of how godliness fits in with the gospel. Listen to these words carefully. He says, It is by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, for it is the gift of God. But the heart that is full of faith will always overflow in attitudes and actions very different from those which flow from unbelief. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of faith. And that reality is in no way inconsistent to us being saved through faith alone. But we must understand that this reality does not mean that we in any way earn our salvation. No. Our deeds do not earn, they exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness, they are the mark of our new life in Christ. And our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favour, but they do demonstrate our faith. For we must always keep that distinction clear in our mind regarding our attitudes and actions. Listen, they do not earn, they exhibit. They do not merit, they mark. They do not deserve, they demonstrate. That is brilliant. To understand that is a life-changing moment in Christianity. We are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is all without doubt the glorious finished work of Jesus Christ. But where that faith is real, it will never ever be alone. It will come forth in actions in our life. Not out of duty, but out of delight. We'll be so in love with Jesus and amazed by what he's done, we'll want to live for him. And those actions of living for him, they don't earn our salvation or merit our salvation or put us in a position to deserve our salvation, but they do exhibit it and mark it and demonstrate it. So a few weeks ago, I used that analogy of the spinning plates. And if you remember, I sought to fill the stage with all different things that we are doing as Christians. So we've got Bible reading and the plate goes on and there's Bible memorization, meditation, all good things in the Bible. And then we pray and then we give and we serve and we give ourselves to the local church and we give ourselves to our gospel communities and all the one another's of scripture. All good things. But what I was trying to help us see is when it comes to earning our salvation, we can go ahead and let all those plates drop because they don't add a single thing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All these plates, they don't add to our salvation at all. All these plates and spinning them doesn't put us in a position to earn our salvation or merit our salvation or deserve our salvation. Not at all. But having put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, and having been compelled by amazement in him, what these plates still do do, is they exhibit our love for him, and mark our love for him, and demonstrate our love for him. They don't earn it, which is why we can let them drop in that sense. 
But when our lives have truly been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to want want to let them smash to the ground. You're going to want to spend time in his word because you love him. And you're going to want to pray because you're amazed that through prayer I get to be with him. You're going to want to worship because you can't help back. You're going to want to give because you're aware. It's, it's through my giving that in part I please him and I point my heart to things above, which means I point my heart to Christ. You see? These things don't earn our salvation, but they do mark it. They do demonstrate it. They do exhibit it. And more even than that, these plates also put us in a position to experience this great salvation, don't they? As you're spending time in the Word, you realize, Lord, it says I'm spending time with you in this, that I love you all the more. And it says I pray that I'm aware. Lord, you are worthy of all my praise. Oh, Lord, you tell me in your scripture that I can do nothing apart from you. And so, Lord, I'm here just talking to you. Today, would you give me my daily bread? Make sense? These plates, they don't earn our salvation or deserve our salvation or merit it, but they do mark it, they do demonstrate it, they do exhibit it, and they do put us in a position to experience it. For like we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, Paul says, For it is the love of Christ that compels us. The love of Christ. The only way you're going to change is to be compelled by love for Christ, and it is that why these plates are still so good. They don't earn it, but they do put me in a position to experience Christ, which causes me to want to love him all the more and then live for him. And my friends, that's how the gospel and godliness go together. One is the cause and one is the effect. They don't earn it, but they do exhibit it. They don't merit it, but they do mark it. They don't put it in a position to deserve it, but they do demonstrate it. The pursuit of godliness then is something that all Christians are called to. You can't look at it like I look at vegetables and go, yeah, no. This is for everybody. It's the effect of what it means to follow Jesus and actually be in love with him. So question two. What exactly then is Paul calling us to here? Understanding that it's an importance and priority then in my life as a Christian, what exactly is he calling you and I to here in these verses? Well, look again at the start of verse 5, because this is what he says. Pay attention to these words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. How then am I called to go about this pursuit of godliness in my life? How are you called to go about this pursuit of godliness in your life? Here's where it begins. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Quite literally, what he's saying there is put to death the evil and sinful ways of the old self. For in Christ, you're now new creations. That's what he's already taught us about. You're a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. You've been united with Christ in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Sin no longer has dominion over you because the spirit of the risen Christ lives in you. So now live for him. Be passionately living for him. And where that begins is putting off the old self. These old self ways are the world's ways. And you've been declared holy and blameless and above reproach before the Lord. So these ways, they got to go. They're all part of who you used to be. But they're not part of who you are now. You know, one of the things that struck me about this text, and I think really challenged and provoked me this week as I, re- as I was reading it, is the manner in which Paul wants us to deal with our sin. I mean, pay attention. First three words. Put to death. Wow. They are words of violence. They are words of intentionality. They are words of aggression. Paul is quite clearly not saying that, hey, listen, sin is not, not really a big deal. Don't worry about it too much, but if you could, maybe go to growth group, you know, just when you can. Um, maybe try and, I don't know, just maybe share a few things now and again. No, no, no. Put it to death. Go after it. Be violent with it. Be intentional with it. Be aggressive with it. And I couldn't help, as I read that this week and reflected on that this week, I wonder, for us at Sovereign Grace Church, me included, do we see dealing with our sin like that? One of the things I love about Australia is we do have a sort of she'll-be-right type attitude about most things, don't we? 
She'll be right. It's all, we're all mates. And in my fears, I think we can have a she'll be right and we're all mates attitude with our sin as well. As if it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? It's just a, I mean, it's just a thing. It's just who we are. See, sometimes I think we fail to realize just how serious our sin is before the Lord. See, our sin, it is dangerous. It will rob you of things that you never saw coming. Rabbi Zacharias says, Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And how true that is. We think we're just flirting with it in some small way. It's not the end of the world. It's just you know, speaking in a way I probably shouldn't or looking at something that I probably shouldn't. I think it's okay. It's not a big deal. But one of the biggest dangers of sin, it deludes us into thinking it's not a big deal. And it fails to help us see that this sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. As one theologian once said, he says, sin tastes good. And so it does. It's like when your mum and dad sit you down and say, oh, you don't want to do that. It'll feel really bad. That's not true. It will probably feel great. Here's the challenge. Sin tastes good, but take note. Sin always leads to nausea and vomiting. And so it does. Sin never delivers as advertised. It promises so much and then gives you nothing. It takes you further than you wanted to go, costs you more than you wanted to pay, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. Sin is dangerous. It is guilty of false advertising. And if you've ever wondered how serious your sin really is, then gaze at Calvary. That's how serious your sin is. Your sin, that we can have an attitude of, I think it'd be alright, is the very thing that Jesus had to brutally die for. He says in verse 6, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's talking there about sin. He's giving a picture there of the world, on the account of these sins, and in light of this behavior, the, the holy, righteous, angry wrath of God. It's coming. And so the Apostle Paul takes us by the hand and says, Listen, put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. These ways are the old ways. They're part of who you used to be, but not anymore. You're a Christian now. You're a follower of Jesus Christ now. You're called to be holy and blameless before him. And then what he does for the remaining of this passage is he gives us two lists of sins to help us understand what it is that we've got to be putting to death. Now, to be clear, these are not exhaustive lists. Paul does this a lot in his letters. He gives lists of things, but it's not like, okay, if you don't commit one of these sins, you're sweet. No, that's not the point. He's just illustrating the types of things that this is all part of the old self. For example, so he gives us one list in verse 5, and these are all sins of sensuality. Read with me verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All these to Paul are all part and parcel of the same thing. They are sins of sensuality. So he starts with sexual immorality and impurity. In these words, when you join them together, it basically includes anything that happens sexually outside of marriage or which distorts God's gift of sex within the confines of marriage. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from today. And when you add the word impurity to it, it widens that lens from just pornea to include any actions that distort sexuality as given to us by God. So these phrases include things like adultery and homosexuality and prostitution and pornography. And what Paul is saying is these things should have nothing, no part in your life as followers of Jesus Christ. He then adds to that passion. And you think, man, since when is passion a sin? Well, the word there is pathos, which usually is actually translated lust. And that's what he's talking about. 
He's helping us see, listen, these sins, they're not just what we do with our body, they're also what we do with our hearts and with our eyes. Lust also is a sin before the Lord. Jesus taught us that in Mark chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, For you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus wants to help him see, listen, this isn't just what you do with your body, this is what you do with your mind and your hearts as well. Lust is a sin before the Lord. It's why Job himself said, I have made a covenant with God with my eyes, never looked upon a woman lustfully. He then goes on in Job 31 verse 11 to say, For lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. See, we live in a world where particularly men looking at pornography, and women do it as well, but men in particular, it's classed as no big deal. It's just the norm. And what Paul is saying is, listen, it is the norm in the world, but in the church it should have no place. Because you're holy and blameless. You're a new creation, united with Christ. It's different for you. He then goes on to say evil desire. Evil desire, quite simply, is illicit, wicked, and self-serving desire. It's a heart that quite literally just thinks about itself. So you may have a persuasion or a desire for something and it becomes insatiable. I'm just going to have it. So you just try and get it. Evil desire. And what Paul's saying is, listen, you have the spirit of Christ in you. Sin no longer has dominion over you, so you have the power to say no. So start saying no. Not just illicitly practicing whatever you feel like, going after whatever you want and assuming, because I feel it, I've got to get it. It's different for you now. You're a Christian. And then he talks about covetousness, which he explains very clearly is idolatry. You know, more often than not, when we think of the sin of covetousness, we think of greed and materialism, don't we? We think of, yeah, I really shouldn't, you know, crave after somebody else's house or somebody else's car. Well, what Paul wants to help us see is, listen, this craving of covetousness, that comes under the aspect of wanting somebody else sexually as well, somebody that you're not married to. It's covetousness. It's idolatry. It's basically looking at God and saying, you're not enough for me. I like you, but you're not enough for me. I've got to have this as well. It's idolatry. Paul lists these five sins all under the banner of sins of sensuality and makes it clear. All these things are part of the old self. They need to be put to death. They need to be put off. They should have no place among you as God's holy people. And then he gives us a second list, a second list of six sins that all relate into sins of attitude and speech. And they come in verses 7 through 9. This is what he says. He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. All these sins, then they start to talk about attitude and speech. The first three he puts together, anger, malice, and wrath. All those three, often in Paul's letters actually, he puts those three together. He puts them as three different facets of the same thing. Anger then, just to be clear, you're probably thinking, oh, listen, I didn't think anger was a sin. I actually get this quite a lot. I just want to be real clear on that. That is true. Anger in and of itself is not always a sin. In the Bible, it is, there is clearly a place for anger, a very appropriate time to be angry. And here's what it is. The appropriate time to be angry is when we are on the end or when we perceive rank and righteousness and or injustice. That's when we should be angry righteously. So when we're, we're aware or thinking through sexual abuse or abortion or racism, it is appropriate before the Lord to be, I'm angry about this. God hates this, and so I want to hate what God hates, and I'm angry about it. The challenge we have is most of the time, that's not what we're angry about. We are angry about those things. But actually more day to day, I'm angry because I didn't get what I wanted. And I'm angry because you didn't speak to me in the way I think you should. And I'm angry because you don't. I deserve more than to be treated in the way you treated me. The Bible defines that as selfish anger. And what Paul wants to help us see is that type of selfish anger is wrong. 
If you want to represent Christ, wonderful, that's a glorious thing. Hate what he hates and be angry about what he's angry about. But he's never angry about self things. He's angry about how other people are being treated in different ways. Not because, oh, somebody spoke, that Pharisee spoke to me bad, I feel, I feel offended. No, that's never what he's angry about. He seems to forgive and overlook those things. Anger is wrong before the Lord in this way. Likewise, wrath. You know, I was studying that this week and I'm like, man, wrath. I, I don't think I've ever been wrathful. I'm not quite sure what that is. Well, that, that was probably the beginning of the end because I started to look into what it is. Do you know what it is? It's what we call a short fuse or a quick temper. That's what the Apostle Paul calls wrath. In Galatians 5 verse 20, he calls it a fit of rage or an angry outburst. And what he wants to help us see here is, listen, you've been given the spirit of self-control. So anger and that type of wrath should have no place among you. God's given you control now over your tongue. You need to use that control. And then he adds malice to that. Malice, that feeling that we can get in our hearts when we perceive ourselves to have been wronged. And that viciousness that then comes to our mind that tends to wish evil on our perceived aggressor and then rejoices when life seems to fall apart for our perceived transgressor. Paul's saying, that's malice. And that's wrong. That's not the way Christ works. It's not the way we're called to work. And then he talks about slander and obscene talk. See, the Apostle Paul knows only too well that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's just a fact. Jesus taught it. It's a fact. You cannot help yourself. If in your heart there is anger and wrath and malice and bitterness, guess what? That thing's coming out. (laughs) You are not going to be able to stop that thing coming out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what Paul wants to help us see, you know what? If you don't deal with anger and wrath and malice and bitterness, here's what's going to come out. Slander. You'll start slandering people. Slander is hurtful speech that defames another's character. And so that person isn't in the room at the time, but I'm busy talking to this person about how this person has wronged me. I can't believe they do that. They're so awful. Do you even like them? I mean, I, I don't know, man. I'm not even sure they're a Christian. And so we're just busy talking about them defaming their character, leaving this individual thinking very negative thoughts towards them, but this person isn't even here to defend themselves. That's slander. Casting aspersions on somebody else's character. And then there's obscene talk. Foul and abusive speech. Sometimes to the person, sometimes to God. And what Paul is saying is such things should simply have no place among us. Likewise, Lying. Lying. Not telling the truth. You know, Paul's words were pointedly relevant to this ancient culture because lying was without doubt endemic to the Greeks and Jews alike at this time. They lived in a culture where lying was just like, well, that's not like a sin. That's just like who we are. That's what we do. And so they would lie all the time. But what Paul wants to help them see is, listen, our culture has embraced the old sinful ways here. So now as Christians, this stuff's got to go. It's all actually part of the old self. It is not just cultural, it is sinful and wrong. Jesus Christ and God himself always tells the truth. And so if we're going to be imitators of him, we can't tell falsehood. Listen, who do we imitate when we lie? Satan, the father of lies. So his point is that stuff has got to go. Because we're Christ now. You're a new creation. United with Christ in his life and death and resurrection. You've been declared to be holy and blameless and above reproach. So we need to work hard then to put these things to death. So he tells us, put to death then the evil and sinful ways of your old self. It's all different now. That's question three. How exactly... Do we do this? I mean, you hear this and you think, man, this is like as clear as day in the Bible. But how do you do it? What, is it? what does it function like practically in my life? How do we actually go about putting to death the evil and sinful ways of the old self? Where do we even begin? 
Well, my friends, we literally just need to do two things. The first thing is we need to set our gaze on Christ. You know, if you have taken anything from the preaching of God's word in Colossians 1 and 2, then I trust and hope you have taken that. Because it has pretty much been our conclusion every week for the last 10 weeks. Keep looking at Christ. Keep looking at Christ. Keep looking at Christ. Set your gaze on Christ. I thought Brendan did a wonderful job just last week of preaching from Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. And this whole premise within those verses of setting your gaze on Christ, that's the very point of those verses. If you want to change, if you want to become more like Christ, if you want to imitate Christ, then set your gaze and your hearts and minds on things above, which literally means set your gaze on Christ. Each and every day of your lives, set your gaze on Jesus Christ. You see, when we set our gaze on Christ, we will become more and more amazed with him. When we set our gaze on Christ in his word and in prayer and in worship and church, when we set our gaze on him, we'll be more and more amazed in who he is and what he's done. We'll be more and more amazed of just how supreme he really is. For to see Christ was to see God. To know Christ is to know God. For all of creation is his. The hills and the glaciers and the beaches and the oceans, they're all his. And who am I then that he's mindful of me? But he is. He's the head of the church of which I'm a part. And I was dead in my transgressions and sins, far from him living in the futility of my mind. But in that season of time, he came after me and died in my place. Such is then his, his passionate and particular love for you, knowing what you would be like before the foundation of the earth. He's like, you know what? I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you. Even though that's going to cost me my life. The more we gaze at Christ, the more amazed we will be in who he really is and how he really feels about us. And the more amazed then we will become as we gaze at him in the reality that it is that same Christ through his spirit that now resides in me. My friends, are you aware of that? Do you have the power of the risen Christ in you? We should never be going to growth group then or gospel community and saying, listen, I just don't think I change. It's just too hard. Whoa, hang on. Did the spirit of the resurrected Christ not resound and enter into your heart? Because I'm seeing in my Bible, sin no longer has dominion over me. I'm a new creation in Christ. And to help me change bit by bit, Christ himself now sits in my heart. He has broken the chains of sin in my life. Its power and penalty has been dealt with. Its presence is still there. But now through the Holy Spirit, he is helping me change. He's just told us in chapter 2, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead resides in you. What a happy discovery, don't you think? We should never then be saying, I just don't think I can do it. Of course you can't do it in and of yourself, but you can do all things through him who gives you strength. That is the power of Christ. And I submit to you, we're only reminded of that and only live in the good of it when daily we're gazing at it. If we're not busy gazing at it, this whole thing becomes really, really hard. Because it becomes about just trying to change. It becomes moralism or legalism. But when we gaze at Christ and are aware, listen, Lord, I thank you that my Bible reading today plays no part in making me acceptable before you. But I thank you that it's here because it helps me fall in love with you. And then we read. Or we pray. Lord, I thank you that my acceptance before you is not based on the length of my prayer. My acceptance before you is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But Lord, out of that, I'm praying because you amaze me. My friends, if you're serious about change, you must apply Colossians 1 and 2. And you must set your gaze on Christ. You must live that way. And then secondarily, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you want to change, pick one thing and put it to death. One thing. All right, look at me. 
one. If you go away from this and try and change everything, you are going to be in trouble. And sometimes when you hear messages like this, part of our reactions can sometimes be, man, this is just overwhelming. I mean, there's so many sins in my life. And for some people, that can cause great condemnation. Is they've just got a real sensitive conscience and they just live in the midst of condemnation. For others, it becomes the too hard basket and so they just abdicate the whole thing. It becomes the Aussie, she'll be right. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Neither are right. Both are wrong. And the remedy to that is just pick one thing. And what you'll find is by the grace of God and for the glory of God, working on one thing actually affects the other things anyway. Because it's the way it works. It's the way the Spirit works. My friends, as you seek then to pick one thing, one option or one way that you can do that is to pray through Psalm 139. Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's beautiful. King David knew, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to have a heart after you. So, Lord, search me through your spirit. Know my heart. Lord, bring to mind what is it that you want me to grow in. Another thing you can do in that is ask the people around you. Ask your spouse or your friend or somebody in your gospel community. Because so often what you find is it's the Holy Spirit that by God's grace will use others as a means of grace to help us see things in our lives. So maybe you want to say, like, you know, listen, if you knew I wouldn't be angry, unless anger is your problem, but if you, if you knew I wouldn't be angry, then what would be one thing that you think it might be good for me to grow in? You know me. I trust you. Listen, if that just made your heart die a little bit, then maybe fear of man is a place to start. Because that's just the fear of man. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because we all say, I know I'm not like Christ. I know, I know it. But then when somebody else has the audacity to say, I don't think you're like Christ, we're like, how dare you? How dare you? What is that? It's the fear of man. We so want everybody else's approval. And yet we fail to recognize in the kingdom of God, we're all on the same team. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all there to help each other, to help us see things in our lives. So whatever it takes for you to pick one thing, I want to encourage you, pick one thing. Just work on one thing. And then passionately put it to death. See, the Bible is not calling us here to flirt with it. Or, you know, just hang out with it. You know, one of the things I was challenged by this week is how easy it is to go to growth group and share something. And then you go to growth group a couple of months after maybe. And they say, so how are you going in your thing? And you're like, yeah, yeah. What did I share? Well, if we're asking what did I share... We've clearly not been exactly aggressively, passionately, violently putting that sin to death. We can't remember what we shared. My friends, what Paul is talking to here is intentional, violent, aggressive, going after our sin. For some, that will take strangulation and suffocation. Literally, mortification. I've got to strangle that thing. So if you struggle with materialism, it's probably not the best to you know spend all your Saturdays going around Burns Road, or oh, I'm just looking around Warunga. Look at that house. We will never own it. You know, that's not going to help you. You've got to think through, how can I put this sin to death? If you struggle with pornography, it's probably not best to be up late at night on a computer with no filter and then go, oh, I just can't understand why I'm falling. I do. Uh, stop it. Think about it. That's not putting it to death. That's flirting with it. For some, putting sin to death means attacking that thing. And I'm going to starve this thing. For others, it can mean study. It's not something I can kind of just starve. It's something I need to study to work out why do I speak the way I do? What's going on in my heart and what would it look like to change? For everyone, no matter what the sin is, I submit to you that passionately putting to death nearly always involves confession and accountability. The Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another. When was the last time you turned up to your gospel community or your growth group and said, hey, listen, before we start, guys, i just got some things I need to confess. That's what the Bible's calling us to. 
Confession and then accountability. So brother, listen, this is the area that I believe the Lord's putting on my heart to grow in. Would you pray for me in that? Would you encourage me in that? Would you hold me accountable? So if I come next month and I've done nothing, I haven't even started on the book that I said I would, can you ask me why is that the case? Was I serious about change? My friends, as Christians, it's all too easy to treat the pursuit of godliness like I do vegetables. An optional extra. Something that we should probably get round to, but it's no big deal. And yet as Christians, we are to give ourselves to become in daily experience what we have been declared to be in Christ. And so I want to encourage you then to set your gaze on Christ. Lift your eyes to the hills. And then pick one thing, just one thing, and passionately put it to death. And here's what you'll find. Little by little, you will become more like Christ. And as you look back, you will see that little by little, Christ, through his Spirit, has been helping you all the way. And would all the glory then be his. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. Oh, we thank you for the reality that our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of godliness is not how we get into heaven. For we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son alone. Lord, I I thank you that what we are talking about here doesn't add to our salvation. No. But it does exhibit it. It does demonstrate it. It does mark it. And so, Lord, would you help us to passionately and wholeheartedly live for Lord, help us to become more softly aware of the old self. And Lord, help us then to put it to death. Lord, we do want to be like you. And we want to walk in a manner that pleases you. And so Lord, I thank you that the same grace then that has brought us safe thus far is the same grace that now works in us to work and to will for your good pleasure. So Lord, have your way in our lives. And would all glory go to you. Amen.